For the rest of you, we're going to be, as Ryan just said, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles in the pewbacks around you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's in the New Testament. If you're not used to handling a Bible and you go about 80% of the way through your Bible, open it up, you should be able to be close to it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the Gospels. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So we are about seven books into the Bible. And inside that book, you're going to notice there's going to be some big numbers and some small numbers. The big numbers of chapters, the small numbers of verses. We're going to be looking at big number 13, that's chapter 13, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter together. I hope you were able to pick up along the way and what we sung and some of the things that were prayed that there's been an emphasis on love this afternoon. That's really the emphasis of our own passage. And it is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the heart of the Christian life. And yet this passage is considered by many to be one of the, the great literary works of all time. Especially that middle section on love is patient and kind, doesn't envy and boast, and so on and so forth. It's been recited in the funeral of kings. It was, it was recited by a president at his inauguration. It's been recited at perhaps many of our weddings or weddings that we've attended. And yet what's interesting is that when we read that famous passage in context, what we find is it's actually a rebuke. It's a rebuke from Paul to the Corinthian church for lovelessness. Here's what I want to do. I want to consider our passage in three points, three sections, if you were. In verses 1 through 3, we got to get this point right, that a gifted church without love is nothing. A gifted church without love is nothing. So, therefore, in verses 4 through 7, consider your love. We need to consider our love. But that's not the only thing that we need to consider. We also, in verses 8 through 13, need to consider our future. We need to consider our future. You can follow along in the bulletin, the outlines on the back back there if you want to take some notes on there. But here's the basic logic of the passage from beginning to end. A gifted church without love is nothing, so consider your love and consider your future. And here's really the big idea of the passage, uh, my sermon in one sentence, if you would. Live now as you will live forever by loving one another. Live now as you will live forever by loving one another. Notice in those first handful of verses, we're considering this idea of a gifted church without love is nothing. We know that the Corinthian church had previously sent Paul a letter. Paul wrote this letter in response to them. So he knows something of what is going on. And I mentioned last week that to read Paul or to listen to Paul writing to them is kind of like being on the opposite end of a tense phone conversation. We're only hearing one end of it, and we're hearing that incompletely. And yet, I still think we're able to understand exactly what it is that Paul is going after. It seems that perhaps they're writing to him, and they're saying, Paul, listen, you wouldn't believe how gifted and great we are. That we are speaking in the tongues of men and angels some have such prophetic powers that they understand all mysteries and knowledge. 
Others have, have miracle working faith so good that perhaps they might even be able to move mountains. Others are sacrificially giving or perhaps even considering delivering themselves up for the sake of Christ. As we consider all of those things, I just wonder, would that be impressive? If you were wandering around looking for a church and you found a church that gifted, would you think this is a pretty great church? That's impressive. That's a church that surely God approves of. But notice what Paul says in 1 through 3. He says, no, 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 no. Without love, all of that is nothing. The tongues of angels, without love, that is just unintelligible racket. It's no different than the pagan worship ceremonies in the city. Prophecies and, and mysteries and moving mountains, no, without love, I am nothing. Huge cash donations, willful poverty, martyrdom. He says, without love, I gain nothing. Isn't that a bit of a shock to us? Not only to them, but also to us. We tend to think that either sacrifice equals spiritual or the sensational equals good. In our own secular materialist culture, atheists, for instance, like Richard Dawkins perhaps, assumes that miracles can't happen. Christians often tend to believe that God can do weird things from time to time, but those things are the exceptions to the rule and that God doesn't really do them all that often. So when we see something that seems like a miracle, we assume that it must be good and that the people who are doing them must be good and they automatically go up in our estimation. And we may think that if only there were a few more exceptions... Then our atheist friends, perhaps like Richard Dawkins, if we could just raise his cat from the dead, perhaps, then, then there would be more Christians in the world. If only there were more miracles in the world. But beloved, the problem is that the Bible doesn't teach that all miracles are good or that God is the only exception in an otherwise purely scientific world. Or the Bible also doesn't teach that you should measure people by the supposed miracles that they do, by the sensational aspects of their life and their ministry. Just consider, for instance, Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist was said by Jesus to be greater than anyone else in the entire Old Testament, greater than Moses who parted the Red Sea, greater than Elijah who rode on chariots of fire, or Elisha who brought someone back to life. And then we get to John chapter 10, and here's what we discover. John the Baptist never performed a miracle. And he's greater than all of the greatest miracle workers of the Old Testament. Isn't that strange? The man whom Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived up to his day did no miracles. Nothing sensational. In fact, even when Jesus was doing miracles, they don't seem to at all to be, out, to be what we make them out to be. So in John chapter 2, for instance, we have lots of people who believe in Jesus when they see his miracles. But then in John chapter 2, John says, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus, even Jesus is dubious about the kind of faith that comes from merely seeing a miracle. By chapter 6 in the same gospel, gospel of John, he's proved right. When right after one of his biggest miracles, lots of them end up just walking away. 
Perhaps most of all, we need to consider Matthew chapter 7. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 13. Go to your left to the Gospel of Matthew and look at chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's so cuddly and fuzzy. It's not. It gets into our skin a little bit in a good way. Matthew chapter 7. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking now about the end of the world, about when he comes again in judgment. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What about people who say, Lord, Lord, and do lots of miracles? Surely Jesus must be happy with those kinds of people. Surely their names are in the, in the book of life. Surely they're booked for heaven. Verse 22, he says, on that day, many will say to me. Isn't that shocking? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? See also 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. Did we not do all these things in your name? In verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In fact, the one thing we can say for sure about false Christs and false prophets, this is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, is that they will perform signs and wonders, at the very least, to lead God's elect astray. I think we see this all over today. It's a mark of the end of the age of false prophets and antichrists performing supposed miracles and doing sensational things to lead God's people away from the truth of the gospel. You might ask the question, though, who, how can a teacher who does miracles possibly be bad? You can go back to 1 Corinthians 13. How can a church like Corinth, that's full of miracles, it seems, not be the, the best church in the entire world? Here's the answer. There is nothing distinctively Christian about a miracle. Anyone can do a miracle. Now, that may sound shocking to you, but consider the magicians in Egypt. They matched Moses sign for sign all the way through Exodus chapter 7, and through two of the plagues, they could do them too. This world, listen to me, it's hard for us to believe as modern Westerners, but this world is not just matter. Jesus believed and taught about Satan and demons and a spiritual world and powers and principalities, as well as about God and angels. Miracles should not impress us as much as they do. Now, there's nothing distinctively Christian about a miracle, as we've just seen, but there is... 1 Corinthians 13, there is something distinctively Christian about love. Paul says that by themselves, the supposed manifestation of spiritual gifts say nothing about us at all. They're of no value to us unless we do them in love, unless we do them for others. In fact, if we just glance again through verses 1 through 3, the reality is, is that only the Lord Jesus Christ fits all of the what-ifs in these verses. 
Only he did miracles like this. And the poor Corinthians try to copy all the what ifs and they miss his love. Ephesians chapter 5. Be imitators of God and walk in, anybody want to take a shot at it? Love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Just out of these handful of opening verses, I wonder what applications there might be for us. What about evangelical Christians more broadly? We might not be so enamored, for instance, with the gifts of miracles or tongues, not in our church at least, and most modern evangelicals perhaps not. This might be somewhat contrary to our Pentecostal neighbors. But what about the gift of leadership? I wonder if there's other gifts, like the gift of leadership perhaps, that, that we might just insert into one of these. Oh, we love our leaders, don't we? I have 50,000, I have 100,000 followers on social media, and my church is now running 18 services across five locations, and I teach at leadership conferences all over the world, and yet how many supposedly successful church leaders have been disqualified in ministry for unloving, abusive behavior? You may be a great leader, but without love, you are nothing. But what about here at CBC? We've talked about this before. We, we love the Bible and we love theology. That's good for us. We should. We might be tempted, for instance, to, to exalt those who have knowledge or to exalt those who are able to teach. But if someone who teaches does it for their own promotion and not for others, or if someone has theological knowledge, but they use it to flex on others and to win debates in small groups, no, such a person is, is not that much different from a pagan clanging symbols in a temple. They're nothing, and they profit nothing. Beloved, it is not the gifts on display in a church that proves the health of that church. It's easy to assume that, isn't it? Look at that gifted leader, that gifted teacher, those gifted members. But giftedness does not always mean good. Lots of gifts don't necessarily mean spiritual maturity. Because the question is ultimately, how are the gifts being used? Is there love? Because without love, there's nothing and that gets us to point number two in verses four through seven. That in light of these first handful of verses, that if, if without love we are nothing, we gain nothing, we're clanging symbols, then we need to consider our love, don't we? We need to consider our love. Now, when we take verses 4 through 7 out of context, as I've already alluded to, whether for weddings or inaugural speeches or whatever it may be, we focus on the excellency in love, but we miss that these verses are really a rebuke. These would have been hard words for the Corinthians to hear. The tone is from the Apostle Paul, here's what love looks like, and you're not living like this. Notice there are 16 ways that love is described in these verses. And there are 16 ways that the Corinthians have failed to love one another. And so it's a wake-up call to them. It's as if to say, love is patient and kind, but you, Corinthian church, chapter 11, you won't even wait for the poor at the Lord's Supper. 
that love doesn't envy and boast, but there's envy and strife among you as you quarrel over what leader is best. We saw that in chapter one, didn't we? It says love is, isn't arrogant or rude, but then repeatedly Paul rebukes the church for being boastful in their knowledge, boastful in their leaders. In fact, the root of that word rude is, The root to that word is what describes what we just saw in chapter 11 a few weeks ago. That is bringing humiliation and shame on others. Paul goes on and he says, love doesn't insist on its own way, but your focus is on seeking your own advantage rather than the advantage of many. You're you're more concerned about maintaining your freedoms than you are about serving your brother with a weaker conscience. Love isn't irritable or resentful. But you're taking one another to court over minor disagreements, chapter 6. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. And it's worth pausing here for just a moment. When it says that it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, it's clear that love isn't soft or passive. Love will not hesitate to call out wrongdoing. It's concern for truth. It rejoices in it. Love has a backbone. But in Corinth, rather than rejoicing in the truth, the church is tolerating a man who is sleeping with his stepmother, and they're acting like it doesn't even matter. They're not rejoicing in the truth. Paul is saying, you're a gifted church, no doubt. There's spectacular things, it seems, happening among the members, but you're in it all for yourselves. And if you use your gifts in that way, then you're nothing. And then we have a climactic refrain about love. He says, consider how love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the context of the letter at large, Paul is our model. It's it's what we've seen him doing throughout the letter. Consider love bears all things and endures all things. All the way back in chapter 8, Paul was willing to give up his rights and his freedoms because he was concerned for the eternal good of others more than he was concerned about maintaining his own rights. Chapter 9, he says, We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Love endures all things. Not only that, love believes and hopes all things. That doesn't mean that love is gullible. If I tell you that I have a billion dollars and a purple hippo to give away at the end of the service, you don't have to believe me. You can if you want. I wouldn't suggest it. But verse 7 is saying that we shouldn't distinguish between, is not saying that we shouldn't distinguish between truth and falsehood. No, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. But for love to believe and to hope in all things... Well, isn't that the attitude that Paul has toward the Corinthians? That from the beginning of the letter, he starts, remember chapter one, he is thanking God for them. He believes their confession of Jesus as Lord. He, He writes the letter to them as brothers and sisters. He loves them and they are beloved to him. And he hopes for them to listen and to grow and to be full of the work of the Lord that lasts. Paul is for them. He believes all things in them and he hopes all things for them. Paul is our example. We're to imitate him. He just said it a couple of chapters ago. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
But to imitate Paul is ultimately to imitate Christ. Consider how the letter begins by focusing on Jesus' saving work. That this example of a saving work on the cross, it's infused to the letter as the perfect example of love. We've learned how we were bought with a price. That his body given for you, his own blood shed to ratify a new covenant in which our sins are forgiven. So we see at the Lord's Supper. In fact, the word that we see here in chapter 13 for love is agape. That throughout the New Testament, that word is connected to the sacrificial love of Jesus. Sacrificial service for the good of others, seen perfectly in the death of Christ. Bringing salvation to sinners like us. It's love like this that we are called to do. And Paul's saying that's not what your lives together look like. You love the sensational. You love making much of yourselves. But without love, you're nothing. So what does this love look like then? Some of you may remember that British pop band from years back called The Darkness. Anybody? Paul, can you help me out? Okay. They hit it big with songs like I Believe in a Thing Called Love. And they always sing it in that falsetto. You know what I'm talking about? I believe in a thing called love. That, you know what I'm talking about? Just ask Paul later. He'll sing the whole thing for you. They sing their songs in this cheesy falsetto, but that's, but that's what a lot of people think. Their big hits were, I believe, in a thing called love, and their other big hit was, love is only a feeling. And that's what people think, isn't it? That love is only a feeling. Here we see in chapter 13, though, that love is concrete, and it's active. It's something to be lived out. Our culture wants to believe that love should be easy, that it should feel easy. And if it isn't, well, then something must be wrong. Perhaps we married the wrong person or we joined the wrong church. Time to walk away. Look for someone or something easier someplace else. But the reality is, is that love is often going to feel hard. It feels like a sacrifice. It's costly. That's why I just had you consider the Apostle Paul. That's why we need to consider the Lord Jesus Christ and the nature of his love for us. Love is profoundly other person centered. And it's made of hundreds of daily decisions and actions that put the good of others before ourselves. That's what love looks like. That is distinctly Christian, Paul says. Now, I realize that some of us may feel challenged by these verses because the reality is, is that all of us fall short. None of us loves perfectly. Often our love is cold and fickle and partial. That's why we acknowledged our lovelessness in our prayer of confession today. We need the grace of Christ in the face of our lovelessness. But wonderfully, the greatest example of love that we see in the Lord Jesus is also the greatest work of love because it brings forgiveness where we've sinned and it gives us righteousness where we lack it. We read 1 John 4 earlier. It's agape again. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so Paul's call for the Corinthians to love and for us to love comes from a place of great security. That we've been made right with God through the Lord Jesus. 
We love because we are loved. Loved with, a, with an unbreakable, unwavering, unchanging covenant love. That's why we sung what we did earlier. That my love ebbs and flows, but his ever stays the same for us. As we think about our life together as a church and, and how we use many of our own gifts, we need to ask ourselves that if love is patient and kind, then we don't rush then to be first, but we wait on one another. That if it doesn't envy others, then we don't envy the gifts or the influence of other brothers and sisters that we see around you. If it doesn't boast in its own, rather we ask Where's a need? And can I meet that need? And we trust the Holy Spirit to gift us in that need meeting. It's concerned not to shame and humiliate, but to honor. It realizes, we realize that ultimately when we church together, it's not all about me. And notice it's not irritable. It's not easily embittered by offenses whether those offenses are real or perceived. And when there are true wrongdoings, notice love doesn't hold resentment and it doesn't let resentment grow. Paul says it doesn't pursue wrongdoing, that it delights when truth is known and proclaimed and, and lived out. It says that love bears all things, that even when others in our midst are difficult to love, especially when they've sinned against us, we bear their burdens and we restore them with gentleness. Galatians chapter 6, love bears all things. Not only that, love believes all things. It gives the benefit of the doubt to others, always believing the best. And when that's hard to do because of repeated offenses, when believing the best of others is hard to do, well, then love not only believes all things, it hopes all things. That God is at work in that brother. God is at work in that sister. And in me, And though, even though that work is often slow, he is going to bring it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Love hopes all things in that other person. And in all of this, notice love endures all things. It doesn't quit when the going gets rough. And that rather than focusing on moment-by-moment -moment challenges of loving others, our love has to have a long vision. It looks beyond present circumstances and present offenses and present frustrations, and it looks all the way to the hope of heaven. Because heaven, as Jonathan Edwards put it, is a world of love. And that leads us to our final point in verses 8 through 13. That as we consider our love, we need to consider our future. Verse 8, notice Paul says, love never ends. As Paul persuades the Corinthian church to change their ways, to use their gifts and pursue love, he tells them love never ends. This is his final reason. It's the, it's the climax of his argument that love never ends. Literally, it will never fall. It is established like a great girder, fixed and permanent, running through time and into eternity. And all around it are things of the world, even spiritual gifts, things that will pass away and come to an end. And when all they do, what is it that holds firm? Love does. Prophecies are going to pass away. 
Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge is going to pass away. Christian, our future is not spiritual gifts. The future for the Christian is love. Verse 9, look at this. Let's recall these verses. It's been a while since we heard it read. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. These gifts may bring knowledge and truth and growth. They bring us God's word, but notice they do it in part, bit by bit, part by part as the whole body works together. Recall all the way back in chapter 1, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. He says, I praise God that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no lack. We have all the gifts because we have the Spirit. But when Jesus returns, that is when the perfect comes, all of those gifts are going to be redundant. Love is what will endure. Verse 11, Paul seems to be saying now in verse 11, it's time to grow up. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, he says. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It's time to grow up. It's time to stop acting and thinking like children who, who think predominantly about what I'm getting and, and what I want in any given moment. And it's time to start behaving like adults who take responsibilities for others. Recall in chapter 3 how Paul referred to the Corinthians as infants. They still required milk when they should be on solid food by now. Later on in chapter 14, we'll see this in the coming weeks, he appeals to them, quote, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. No, be infants in evil. That is, in all of your actions, be innocent. But in your thinking, you need to be mature. Grow up, he says. And that's what he's saying here. It's time to grow up. It's time to imitate Paul. It's time to get the right perspective on gifts and love and relate them to one another appropriately. Paul says these are valuable gifts, but only in the perspective of this world with all of its imperfections and all of its impermanence. And so to elevate them, to elevate these gifts then, according to our scale of values, above what is eternal, above what will last, is to make a huge error in our thinking. That's a huge error in judgment, to value gifts over love. Because gifts are not our destination. They are for the journey. You and I were not created, and we are not being recreated for gifts. We were made for love. That we would love God, and that we would love one another. Verse 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The image of the mirror here is not a hall of mirrors where you walk in and everything's weird and, and distorted. Nor is it a mirror like what we might have hanging in our bathrooms with that level of clarity. No, in the Corinthians, a mirror would have been just polished metal. Kind of like looking at yourself in the side of your car. It gives a true reflection, but it's dim. And so Paul says, if you're using your gifts properly, motivated by love, well, then you're going to see God in the gospel. That's the goal. You're going to know much, and yet, it's not yet the bright fullness of seeing Jesus face to face. But when the perfect comes, we'll move from wonderful, true, life-giving, yet impartial knowledge to the full knowledge of God in the face of Christ. 
Paul says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Christian, our future is to know God as he knows us. Right now, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we're going to see clearly. And we will love him on that day with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength forever. That seems so daunting today, but it won't be in that day when the perfect comes. No more need for bearing up or believing all things or hoping all things or enduring all things. No hint of selfishness or weariness. No, heaven is a world of love and that, beloved, is our future. Do you believe that? Perhaps you're looking in on the Christian message this afternoon. You're here and you're not a Christian. I don't have to tell you that the world wants love. I just saw just a couple of days ago that Hallmark Christian movies are already making their way out, and that proves as much. And no doubt you want love too. And I wonder the number of ways that you've sought it in the world and perhaps the number of ways that it's come back empty for you. The whole world wants love. But where is it that love is found? Friend, if you want to know love, come to Jesus, who gave his life on the cross to pay the price for your sin, that your sin may be forgiven. Surrender your life to him as, as Lord, and he will fill you with his Holy Spirit, that you might be filled with his love and grow in his love and know his love in its fullness forever when he returns again. That promise is held out to you if only you would renounce your sin of seeking love in, in faulty and bankrupt places and turn instead to Christ who is a fount of love that he might save you and bring you into heaven which is a world of love. All of that can be yours if you would trust in Christ. As a church family, you and I, we need to consider how we use our gifts. We need to consider what does grow up, grown-up thinking and behavior look like? What does it look like to not be acting like children but trying to get our way with everything but rather loving one another? Verse 13, Paul concludes this way, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We see this Christian triumvirate all over the Bible, don't we? Faith, hope, and love. And all three of them are essential to the Christian life, the right of the heart of the Christian life. But Paul says that one of them is the greatest. Why love? Because, beloved, one day when the perfect comes, our faith is going to be made sight, and you won't need faith anymore. One day when the perfect comes, your hopes in Christ are going to be fulfilled and you will not need to hope anymore. But that day when the perfect comes and our faith becomes sight and our hopes are realized, all of us are going to be swept away by Jesus and resurrected glorified bodies into heaven, into a new creation. And that will be a world of perfect and lasting love. Because God is love, and we are with him to enjoy and glorify him forever. And so we aim, 
brothers and sisters, with God's help. Even though we see in a mirror dimly now, to, to live now as we will live forever. That's not in the exercise of the gifts. That's not being impressed with the spectacular. It is in the mundane hundreds of ways every single day that we aim to walk in spirit-empowered love for the body and the bride of Christ. That's what endures. That is what we are going to be doing four trillion years from now. And if that's something that doesn't interest you today, well, then you may not be a Christian. We live now by God's grace, loving and doing the things that we are going to be doing four trillion years from now. Love endures. It never ends. And so we aim to love one another. Pray with me.